0: Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 11. If you were with us at Christmas Eve, we went through Isaiah 12, which is really the ending of Isaiah 11, and Isaiah 12 was all about how we respond to the good news of Isaiah 11. So what is the good news? What is the big deal? Let us look here. We'll be looking at the whole chapter, but this morning I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. And 12 and 16, hear now the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking for the past several weeks at Isaiah chapters seven through 12, uh, called by some the Book of Emmanuel." because it's a series of related and connected prophecies about how the Lord promised to deliver his people from an invading nation, specifically Assyria. And, and the prophecies began uh, with the promise that a child would be born, one called Emmanuel. And before he was of age, the Lord would have fulfilled his promise to rescue from Assyria and the invading nations. And this chapter 11 is the high point of these prophecies because it's not just the rescue from Assyria. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know Assyria was was the big bad superpower. The the nation that was coming in at first to rescue Assyria. God's people from northern Israel and from Syria that were allied against them and were coming against them. And Assyria was going to come in and, and swoop in and rescue God's people. And God said, no, don't, don't count on them for that. I'm going to rescue you. But they didn't trust the Lord to do what he promised to do. And instead they looked to Assyria and promised loyalty to this, this other nation who then came in and not only rescued them, but then took over and conquered all the surrounding nations and was surrounding God's people. And the Lord promised and kept His promise to defeat even Assyria, as we've seen in the past few weeks. But this Isaiah chapter 11 is the high point, because it's not just about rescue from Assyria, because after Assyria would come Babylon. And after Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, after the Medes and the Persians would come the Romans, and God's people would never be given rest or deliverance. Because there would always be a stronger nation coming in. What Isaiah 11 promises is the Lord will deliver not from these earthly powers, but He will give an even greater deliverance from all that oppresses His people. A greater rescue through a greater Emmanuel. What's interesting about this chapter is there's not a single command in it. The commands are all in chapter 12, and they sound like this. Sing, shout, rejoice, celebrate, be excited. Because chapter 11, having no commands, is all promise. It's all promises of what the Lord promises to do. But in those promises, we learn how to live. I was reminded of this recently. We did some reorganization within our house, and we converted one of the rooms into an office space. And to do that, we needed to order several bookcases. And as Randy reminds me, I'm prone to call them bookshelves. They're not bookshelves because a shelf is one. A bookcase holds many shelves. And so, Randy, I got it right. Uh, So we ordered several of these bookcases to hold books and things like that. And because of the way they were ordered, it was going to take several weeks for them to get there. And so we set up the office, we painted it, we moved everything in there, and then we made space. We, we moved things to the side, we rearranged the furniture, and we made space for what was gonna go in there, what we were waiting for, what we were anticipating. What we did not do, we did not hang paintings or things on the walls where those bookcases would be. We didn't stack up boxes or pile things up. Because that, that space was taken. We were waiting for it. Because of what we were waiting for, we rearranged and lived a different way in that space. And it's, I think it's similar. As we look to the promises of God, as He tells us what He's going to do, we don't just wait for it by looking ahead. We wait for it by rearranging the furniture of our lives to anticipate what's coming, to make room for what's coming. We live in a certain way because of what God's promised. So as we look at Isaiah 11, what has God promised to His people What new and amazing reality is ahead of us? And how should we order our lives? How should we rearrange our furniture in expectation of what's coming? The first promise we see in Isaiah 11 is that we wait for justice. We wait for justice and we see that in the way that Isaiah describes the true king in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse being the father of David. In, in Isaiah 10, the Lord had just described how he was going to come in and level the Assyrian army. And the language, the imagery he used was like coming into a forest and cutting down all the trees. The mighty soldiers and generals and leaders and even the king of Assyria is going to be cut down till there was only stumps left. And then in the very next verse, Isaiah goes on and says, But from the stump of Jesse... From the kingship of David's household, something will rise. He's speaking of the true king that they were waiting for, which we know to be Jesus. You see, in in the days of Isaiah, they had a a descendant of David on the throne, and he was messed up. Ahaz, not a good king. So bad, I'm not even putting on the screen the Bible verses describing what he did as king of Israel. He he, He ruled with greed and idolatry and abuse. And it was disgusting what he did. He was not the good king rising up from the stump of Jesse from David's household. In fact, the whole history of the kings over God's people was, was a mixed bag, but mostly bad. Mostly kings that were, were wrong, idolatrous, greedy, oppressive. And so God's people were waiting for justice, waiting for a true king, a king who would not oppress the poor in favor of the rich. A king who would not judge based on favoritism and who gives him the most money, but would instead judge justly. A king with wisdom like Solomon. A king after God's own heart like David was. And I would suggest that we today have the same longings though we don't speak in language of kings and queens. We, we recognize that no political leader will ever Satisfy us. We, sure, we may like one candidate more than the other, but none will satisfy us in the way that we want to be satisfied because our hearts desire and crave and are made for perfect leadership, perfect justice. So we wait for justice. Our deepest desire is for that justice and righteousness that no human system and no human leader with all our human imperfections will ever give us. But the problem is deeper than that. It's not just about politics and government. The problem is ourselves. We can't rule ourselves well. We as humans lack the wisdom, the self-control, the knowledge There's a whole book in the Bible about that, describing what happens when God's people are left to lead themselves and rule themselves. It's the book of Judges. And though God did great things and graciously delivered His people again and again, the theme of that book is summed up several times in this recurring phrase that we see uh, in one example at the end in Judges 21. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I had a professor at my university, not a, not a believer, uh, in my secular university who, uh, in teaching on the Old Testament, quoted this verse from Judges and tried to argue that this was an ideal, that the author of Judges was saying those were the days, oh, when we didn't have a king and everyone could just do what they thought was right, that's when things were good in Israel. Now, I was just a foolish undergrad student, but even I saw through that, and that's baloney. Okay, because if you read Judges, you see that phrase always follows unspeakable tragedies. And the author is saying, look, this is what happens when we try to use our own wisdom and lead ourselves. Look what happens to us. That one there, Judges 21, is written after three chapters of some of the, the most messed up stuff in the Bible, One horrible thing after another, just following after another, causing this, causing that. The violence, the unspeakable acts. And it's summed up with that phrase. Yeah, you know what? In those days, there was no king, and we all just did what we thought was right. That's a tragedy, because we don't know how to lead ourselves. We wait for justice. Not just a punishment of evil. Justice isn't just about punishment. Justice is at least punishment. You know, Plato's written a whole book. Plato's Republic is written to answer the question, what is justice? And he argues that justice is not just about punishment. It's about everybody being where they belong, everything well-ordered, everything where it belongs, everything right, everything where it's supposed to be, everything fair and ordered. I would disagree with Plato's analysis of how that comes to be, but I will agree with him in principle that justice is not just about punishing evil. It's about things being made right, things being well-ordered. And that does not come from us. That does not come from any human wisdom. It only comes from the wisdom of God telling us how his created world was meant to be. We see that in verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 11. This true king rising from David's line, who we know to be Jesus, it says, The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of might, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He gets his knowledge of how to lead from the Spirit of God. That last line I think is intriguing. His delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Not only his wisdom or his insight, but his delight. Where do our leaders find their delight? Where are they looking? uh, Who are they looking to please? Jesus says, My pleasure is to do the will of my Father. Our leaders today, they're trying to please their party. They're trying to please the voters. They're trying to please the media. They're trying to please themselves. Jesus is the true leader whose joy and delight is doing what God has called him to do. As, as he taught us to pray in the, Lord's, in the uh, Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. So not being held or not holding himself to any standard of public opinion or any other earthly power, he brings true fairness, true justice. We see in verses 3-5, through he's not going to judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That's not saying he's closing his eyes and plugging his ears. It means he's not judging by appearances. He's not judging by rumors or what he hears. He's he's looking, it says in verse 4, with righteousness he's going to judge the poor, with equity for the meek of the earth. And he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he's going to kill the wicked not let them prosper righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins isn't that what we really want i mean we really want we want to see evil punished we want to see fairness for all we want to see the truth prevail and not a truth limited by our own or any human interpretation of it but a truth that transcends all that That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're hoping for. But not just waiting. Remember, we've we got to keep that space open in the office. We've got to rearrange the furniture for what we know is coming. And if the justice of the Lord is coming, if He's bringing a kingdom of justice, how are we called to make space for that, to make ready for that today? Well, one way we do that, one way we anticipate that and live out this good news is because the same spirit of wisdom that is given to the to the shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. That same spirit of wisdom is given to all of God's children, to all of His people. And so we can likewise imitate the justice that He will bring to all the earth. We can delight in the fear of the Lord. We can refuse to judge based on how things appear and instead apply the knowledge of the Word of God. What if we actually practiced 2 Corinthians 5.16? where Paul writes, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Meaning that when we look at at one another, when we look in the mirror at ourselves, and when we look at our neighbors and even our enemies, we don't look at them according to the flesh, according to the way the world looks at them. We don't look at them and judge them based on their income, their appearance, their fashion sense, their political views, uh, or anything else. We're not judging them by the standards the world uses to judge. We're instead looking at them from God's perspective. What if we didn't take our cues on right and wrong or make our judgments on who is valuable and and who is not by learning from politicians or celebrities or businesses and corporations? What if, just what if, we treated one another and our enemies and every stranger we meet In light of God's standard of justice. That this person is made in the image of God. That this person is worthy of dignity. That this person is in need of mercy. That this person can be welcomed into God's family by the grace of God. We wait for justice and as we wait, we imitate the justice of God that is coming. There's more that we wait for as we go on in Isaiah 11. We also wait for peace. The fruit of that justice that the king brings is not just that criminals are behind bars and everything is all nice and ordered, but it's more than that. Look at verses 6 through 8. I was just at the Miami Zoo yesterday. Some of these images are stark in my mind. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. They didn't keep them in the same pens in the Miami Zoo, I'll tell you that. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze; their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And as a young father, I'm saying, no, no, you will not play over the hole of the cobra. The wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Uh, look at what's promised here. I want you to notice that. You know, when we went to the zoo yesterday, we saw tigers, and between us and the tigers there was a fence, another fence and a large ditch that the tigers would not be able to cross. So they were off in the distance, separated from us. What kept me and my family safe from the tigers was that they were over there and we were over here and the evil could not reach us. There's another zoo I went to many years ago when I lived overseas, a, a zoo I visited in Asia where they had different standards on how you were allowed to treat animals. And one of the things they offered in that zoo when you walk in, one of the first things you see is that there's picture opportunities and you can take a picture with a live tiger. And I don't mean with a tiger in a cage behind you, I mean you sit down and rest on the tiger. And how do you know it's safe? Well, that thing is so sedated. It's not going to attack anyone. It was barely awake all day long. You know, there's a way that we can be safe from wild animals. We can, we can create a false peace by sedating or restraining or limiting them. But that's not what's happening in Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, the picture is this, that Eden is restored. The, the peace is, that man has with nature, it's restored. It's not that the the terror of the animals is restrained and held back and muzzled. No, their desire to hunt and kill is removed. And we're not just talking about animals. Verse 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. If anything, the animal imagery is symbolic of what will happen, the transformation that will happen in our hearts and in our lives, where God's people will be free from harm because the desire to hurt and harm and destroy has been removed. It's, the, it's, it's, uh, it's a repeat of the image given in Isaiah 2 when he prophesied that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I believe those words are over the uh, the entrance of the United Nations building, aren't they? Somewhere like that. The idea being that the hope is that by getting together and talking, we're going we're gonna to end war. We're going to remove this tendency that we have to hurt one another. How's that been working for us? How's that working for the world? Have we, by our human means, been able to restrain the desire to hurt and destroy? No, we have not. What did Isaiah say? removes the power and desire to destroy. It's because the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. What Jesus brings is not a moral code to restrain evil. What Jesus brings is not a religious authority that enforces good behavior on people. No, He brings something more effective and more amazing than any of that. He transforms sinful desires. He removes the sickness of the soul and replaces it with a desire to obey. I love looking at this passage in Ezekiel 36. I quote it at least once a month or so. The Lord promises, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules the kind of change that brings peace is not something we can do for ourselves and not something we can do for others. You can't just decide to stop feeling anxious. You can't force someone to stop being angry. You can't convince someone and persuade someone to stop lusting or to give up an addiction. You can't legislate holy desires. The kind of total transformation that leads to peace is only possible when God removes the sinful heart and replaces it with His Spirit. And that affects how we approach ourselves, one another, and the world. That's what we wait for. That's the peace that God has promised. Now, how do we rearrange? How do we make room for that peace? How do we live in light of that promise as we wait for it? Well, do you want to sincerely change? Do you want to see others change? How do we go about that? Do we point out their errors? Do we point out their mistakes? Do we make sure that we never miss a chance to show them that they're wrong? Do we show off our success? Do we, do we make sure people see that when we compare ourselves to them that we're better and they're, they're worse and they need to get with the program? That's, that's not how the peace of God comes about. That's not how we stop harming and hurting in all this holy mountain. It's when the knowledge of the Lord invades the soul. You know, When Paul says in, in Ephesians, when he says not to get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, he doesn't just say, therefore, you know, dump it all out, lock it up, hide it away. No, he says, don't do the bad thing. And the way you don't do the bad thing is you replace it with something else. Don't get drunk on wine, but instead... Be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with His Word. Be surrounded by His people. Immerse yourself in the means of grace, the ways by which God communicates His grace to you. Be so filled with His Spirit that there's no room for unholy desires. Replace what is evil with what is good until it crowds it out. That's how we anticipate and wait for and act upon the peace of God that is promised to God's people. There's one more thing that we see in this passage that we wait for. Because to be honest, so what if Jesus brings a kingdom of justice and peace? So what if He brings that if we're on the outside of it? If we are left out, if we are excluded. And so we don't just wait for justice. We don't just wait for peace. We also wait for welcome. We see that. In verse 12, Isaiah says that he, this, this offspring of David, Jesus will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He's gathering in his people and bringing them back. But they're, how does he describe them? Why are they far away? Have they gotten lost? Have they just wandered away? No, it says they're banished. The banished ones will be brought back. Not lost, confused, misguided, or wandering, but banished. We have been banished by God. Excluded. Cast off. That began in the Garden of Eden, in the paradise where Adam and Eve lived in harmony with each other and with nature and with God. But when they chose their own way and decided that they knew what was best rather than what God told them what was best, God said, look, My kingdom can't have two kings. Either I am king and you follow my way, or you lead your own way and you are king. But if you're going to be king, you can't be in my kingdom. And so what did he do in Genesis 3? It says he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The Lord cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. He banished them and all of their offspring, including me and you, banished us from the glorious, beautiful, life-giving presence of God. And then put up the cherubim, giant angels with flaming swords to keep us out. And in fact, it's a mercy. It's a mercy that He did so because otherwise, had they remained in the garden, Scripture tells us, they could have eaten of the tree of life and lived forever but they would have lived forever ever in rebellion against God and in separation from Him, and there would have been no redemption. So in order to protect His people from that, from that fate, He banished them until He could bring them back. And He put the angels out there to keep them away. Why is that important? It is important. Because as God created the temple and the tabernacle and gave instructions on where He was to be worshipped, he, he set it up to structure it like, like the whole universe and the center of it all was the Holy of Holies, where, where the ark would be and where God would meet with his people and receive the, the sacrifice for their sins. And around that holiest of holy places, God instructed that a great curtain be put up, a veil to keep God's people from entering his presence. Because if they did, he warned them, if you come to my presence, you will die because of your sin. And here's the great thing. God who loves art, do you know what He commanded to be to be etched into, embroidered into those great curtains? Two cherubim with flaming swords keeping His people out, reminding them, you cannot come here. It's not safe for you. You are banished from the presence of God. All of us are banished. But the Lord does not leave it at that. There's a little verse in 2 Samuel 14 where a woman says to King David, We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Now that sounds pretty hopeless. You ever try to gather water up after it's been spilled? But God will not take away life. And He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. God devises means so that those who have been banished and shut away from Him can be brought back. And the means that He has devised is Jesus. For centuries, we were separated from God, and the curtain at the temple reminded all of creation that the cherubim stood with swords to keep us away, lest we be destroyed in the presence of a holy God. But then, Jesus, God the Son, entered into that presence bearing our sin and let himself be destroyed so that we could be brought near. It reminds me of this past summer, I went with my kids to the beach. And one of the days at the beach, the waves were just slamming, slamming, slamming. I mean, my kids couldn't stand up in it, but they wanted to go out in the waves. And so one of them asks daddy to carry her out there. And so I pick her up and I back out into these waves and they're hitting me. And I'm getting the water up my nose and the water in my eyes. And I'm gagging and coughing and sputtering. And it's, it's slamming me wave after wave after wave after wave. And she's loving it. You know, <laughs> she's having a grand old time because she's not getting hit with the punishing waves. Someone else is taking the punishment for her. And that's what Jesus did. He goes past the flaming cherubim and takes the blow on our behalf, carrying us in that we may be brought back. And so when Jesus dies, look what Matthew says happens in Matthew 27. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple, the cherubim that told you to stay away because you're banished. He was torn in two from top to bottom. The way was opened again. The result of the death of Jesus is this in Romans 5. While we were His enemies, we who were enemies were reconciled to God. The banished ones were brought back by the death of His Son. Those were the means that the Lord devised that the banished one would not remain an outcast. We have been welcomed. We wait for that welcome in its fullness. And like justice and like peace, that welcome isn't just something we wait for. It's something we act on. We make room for. One of the ways we see that is here in Isaiah 11, verse 13. It says, The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Self-explanatory, right? Um, Ephraim being the, the kingdom of northern Israel, and Judah, the southern kingdom, They were they had been separated hundreds of years before Isaiah prophesied. They were to be brothers and sisters. They were God's people. They were to be united as one. And yet they had separated and they were in fact at war with each other and harassing each other and, and, and in conflict with one another. And the Lord says, look in that day, I will welcome my people back and they set aside their differences, their hatred and their jealousy and everything that tore them apart and they will welcome one another. People who have been welcomed become welcoming people. When you are accepted, when you realize that you don't need to treat other people as obstacles to your happiness, that changes how you treat them. We tend to look at other people because we feel we need, we still need something. We're still trying to knock on that door and receive welcome and acceptance and security, and peace, and other people are either obstacles in our way, or they're stepping stones to get us there. And we tend to build friendships and relationships based on what can you offer me? Are you funny? Do I like being around you? Are you generous and I want your money? Do you have access to people that I need access to? Are you annoying and so I'm not going to be around you? Are you too needy and so I won't answer your calls? We tend to respond to people as either obstacles or stepping stones. But when you have been welcomed, when everything you have needed is given to you, you are freed from that. And instead of being obstacles and objects, people then become those that you can bless, people that you can welcome, people that can receive mercy. And you, having your needs met, can move towards them as one with the power to bless because you bring the welcome of God. Justice, peace, welcome. We're waiting for them in all their fullness, but they have been promised to us now, more than promised. Jesus died and rose again to guarantee them. That's how God's covenant works. He promised us, by his covenant, that he would bring a kingdom of justice. And we make room for that by treating people according to his standard, his values. He has promised us a kingdom of peace. And we make room for that by letting him transform our hearts rather than trying to manufacture a false peace, rather than trying to force people to live the way we want them to live we instead trust God and, and and trust the Spirit to change and transform their hearts. God has promised us welcome in His kingdom, and we make room for that by welcoming others with our lives of grace and joy and calling others to live in this kingdom of peace and justice. But we've gotten just a taste of all that. We don't have it all yet. That's the beauty of a covenant I was thinking of another kind of covenant, a marriage covenant, where a young man and a young woman experience this same, uh, theologians call it already and not yet. God has already given us these things in Jesus Christ, but we don't have them yet the way that we will. Like a married couple who, who is engaged to be married, and they're starting to arrange their lives around that commitment. They're starting to make plans to live together. They're starting to, to change their schedules around one another. They're starting to adjust their finances around each other. They're waiting for this great thing to be true. But until it is, they have a lot to do to make ready for it. We're going to sing in just a moment about the Lord's anointed. Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. Not just the shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse as verse 1 says, but also as verse 10 says, the root of Jesse himself. And when he comes, we we see the promise in the last verse of the song that the tide of time, his covenant shall never remove. Though we have to wait for it, that covenant is guaranteed. We have already a little bit of it. And until we have all of it, He's shown us how to live. How to make room for the justice, the peace, and the welcome that we have tasted. And as we do so, we welcome great David's greater son and the kingdom that he brings. Let's pray that he would lead us in that path today. Our great shepherd, we thank you for what you have promised for what you've promised is greater than we could have imagined, greater than we could have designed for ourselves. And though we don't yet hold it all in our hands, though your kingdom is not yet here in all of its greatness, you've given us a taste and more than a taste. You have secured that promise in Jesus. Give us not only patience to wait for your return and the fullness of your kingdom, but give us also wisdom and faithfulness to live according to those promises, to live as people of justice, to live as people of peace, and to live as people who are welcomed. And as we do so, may your name be made great, your kingdom be made more real, and may we be filled with joy. We pray and we sing in the name of our Savior. Amen.